looking at the calendar this week and realize that we have been doing this series for about a year and a half now. That is walking chronologically through the Gospels. We started way back uh, in September of 2013 and started with Christmas in September, talked about the birth of Christ, and we are now nine weeks out from Easter where we will wrap this series up. We're going to take a look at Easter, um, but as we get there, we're going to see this turn that takes place. We've been looking at a lot of things that Jesus did, a lot of the miracles that he did, he, he, the way he's changed people's lives, but now we're going to see him start to transfer things over to the disciples. We're going to look at him as he prepares himself for the cross. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 19 and 20. Uh, we're actually going to be doing a lot of reading today, and there's a lot of stories that are involved in this reading, as you will see. But, as you will also see, each one of these stories is underneath an umbrella. And the umbrella really is that of God's divine mercy. As a matter of fact, um, I'm going to give you the theme right up front, and then I want to explain something to you. The theme really for today is this. Salvation has absolutely nothing to do with human merit our accomplishments, or what we think we can do, and absolutely everything to do with God's mercy. That is our theme for today, and I want, as we read through each one of these stories, for you to see those things as it's, as it's threaded through each one of these deals. And um, I think sometimes uh, I'm going to use the word today mercy, and I'm going to use sometimes the word grace, and sometimes people think those are interchangeable, but they're not. I'd like to give you just a real quick definition on those as well. See, as we look at mercy, mercy is God not punishing us for what we deserve. Grace, on the other hand, is God blessing us even though we don't deserve it. They're, they're, they're similar, but they're not interchangeable. So as we talk about those things today and we see this woven into this, these passages, I want you to help and understand that. See, so often we get our heads wrapped around this idea that, that we can do it on our own, and, and we can't. We honestly can't. There are people that you will talk to and say, yeah, I can get into heaven because I'm a good enough person. That is human merit. That is human accomplishment, and it has absolutely nothing to do that with that. It has everything to do with the mercy and grace that God has showed to us. So what I would like to do is I would actually like to pray to get started. It was kind of crazy last night. I, I prayed at the beginning, and I said, God, just, just speak to us where we're at. Each person individually in this room is in a different place, in a different way in their lives. Speak to them where they're at. Speak to me where I'm at, and use this message to, to change us. That it's not my message, but, but yours. And I prayed that, and I just went on. Because sometimes, you know, you just pray, and you just pray because you want to make noise. And I kind of felt like that's where I was at last night. I was just kind of making some noise. And at the end, I'll be honest, I didn't feel like I had presented well. Um, I, I didn't feel like I had done well. I had three people come up to me afterwards and say, man, that really spoke to me. And I went, how? How in the world did that possibly speak to you? And, and they, each one of them, it spoke to them in a different way. And I literally looked at one guy and said, I didn't even say that. That wasn't even something I said, I don't know what, where you got that from. Then I went back and said, oh, it's because I prayed that God would speak to us right where we're at. And he's doing the work and not me. Hey, novel idea. So let's pray that this morning to, to start the morning and, uh, and we'll get, get going on this. So Father God, we are so thankful that we have the opportunity to come together and to be able to meet. And be able to, to worship and praise your holy name. Because of the grace and the mercy that you've poured out on us. We lift our praises back up to you. And God, like I've already said, we just ask you to speak to us where we're at. 
that it's not just noise, it's not just a part of the checklist, it's not just what we're here to accomplish, but God, what you're here to accomplish in us. Speak to us. Each person in here is having a different struggle, a different place in their life. They're in different roles. And God, this message, this word, this Bible is alive and it is ready to just penetrate into our lives, into our souls, into our very bones. And God, we pray that happens this morning. We pray that you speak to us in a way that we would never be able to hear it on our own. We pray it in your name. Amen. Starting in Matthew chapter 19, we ended up Matthew chapter 19 and verse 12 last week as we talked about divorce and remarriage. And we're going to pick up from there in verse 13. And the first stories we're going to look at are verses 13 through 30. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to follow along. If you don't, it'll be up here on the screen. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? Basically, in that question right there, he's saying, what is your definition of good? You've called me good. You have, you have obviously said, I need to do some sort of good deed. What is your definition of good? And he goes on from there. He says, there is only one who is good. If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Which commandments do I need to, ta- to, to, to keep? I mean, when you really stop and think about it, he's asking Jesus, What can I get away with? What do I have to keep? I mean, when you really boil it down, that's what he's saying. And the funny thing is, is last week we talked about the Pharisees asking the wrong question. Guess what? Another guy asking the wrong question. But Jesus, being kind, being gentle, answers. And he says this, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, check mark, got all this taken care of. All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Humility, I think, is one. But um, here it is. It says, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasures in heaven. And then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then could be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, I truly say to you, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left the house, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So in the first two parts of this story, they focus on two different groups of people. 
the two different groups of people really did not go hand in hand in this day and age that we're talking about with Jesus. Really, they're kind of separated now, but even more so then. Because one, you had children. Children were looked at as property until they got old enough to not be property anymore, until they actually served a purpose. And I hate to say that, but that was the way they were looked at. Then you had the rich man, and the rich man, he had it all. So we had two very different groups of people. Yet, in every one of the Gospels that this story is mentioned, which is everybody but John, they're coupled together. Why? Why are these two coupled together? Why does Jesus focus on the children and then this rich guy come up and ask this very question? Why are they? What is the connection? Why are they always back to back in the Bible? See, the funny thing is, is you have a story of Jesus receiving people, children, and rejecting somebody, the rich man. And the even funnier part is, is it's the other way around for the disciples. See, they were trying to reject the children and receive the rich man. Why is that? Where is the contrast that takes place in all this? What can we learn from this? Well, there's a connection. There's a connection in this. And first of all, is that Jesus receives the humble. Jesus receives the humble, yet he rejects the proud. He receives the humble. Now, Children, they have a natural ability to understand that they can't do it on their own. They grow out of it quickly, I've found. Um, but, but they have a natural ability to understand that they can't do it on their own. And even when they try and do it on their own and they fail, they understand that they can come to dad to say, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. They come to mom and they say, I can't do this on my own. Yet the proud, as we get older, we feel as if we can do everything on our own. And especially, excuse me, as a man, asking for help is a real kick in the shorts, okay? It's not something that is fun. You get knocked down a couple of levels as that comes about. You say, you know what, I I really don't want the help. But yet Jesus receives the humble. He receives those like children, and the one who thinks they can do it on their own, he rejects. It's kind of a crazy thing to think about, and a lot of times I've heard this, this passage said and preached about when the rich man asks, what can I do, and Jesus gives him a list of things to do, people immediately assume, well, does that mean that as long as I or as long as he does what Jesus has called him to do by giving away his riches, that they can earn their way into heaven? I mean, this passage, it somewhat can be twisted if you wanted to, to say that, yet... When you look at it, when you really listen to it, there's something that Jesus tacks on to the end of that. When he says, give away all your stuff, sell it to the poor, and then what? Follow me. Follow me. Follow after me. It's it's not so much about material possession and, and doing that. It is much as it is getting that thing, whatever it might be, that's between you and following God out of the way. And that is what he's laying out here. And that's the reason why we see it here, this idea of this proud heart needing to be broken down. Because he had pride in the stuff that he had. But he said, I receive the humble. You need to come to me humbly. You need to surrender to the will of Jesus. And that changes everything. And what the guy did was amazing to me. I mean, he's talking face to face with Jesus. He understands who Jesus is. He understands most of what Jesus has been saying. He's seen it take place. And Jesus says, go and give your stuff away and then come follow me. And his response is to do what? Walk away sorrowfully. 
oh man, is there, is there anything, anything else I can do? I mean, I'd really, you know, I mean, come on. He walks away. Do you think maybe he was walking away kind of going, oh, he's going to come back and give me a new offer? You know what the scary thing is? Is that Jesus doesn't chase after him. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I've changed my mind. As long as you're just willing to do it. You don't actually have to do it. Just, just be willing to do it. Then, then it changes everything. But that, that's not the way Jesus responds. As a matter of fact, verses 24, 25, 26 says, it is easier, Jesus says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. See, the things that come in our way between us and God, it makes it very difficult to follow him. And the funny thing is I've heard this passage preached on about the the camel going through the eye of the needle many, many times. As a matter of fact, I I have preached on this passage before as about the camel going through the eye of the needle. And it's been twisted a little bit. And they they say, well, Jesus didn't actually mean the, the camel going through an eye of a needle. What there was is there was a gate in Jerusalem, a small side gate that was really small and difficult for a camel to get through. And what a camel would have to do is unload all of his baggage. And in the process of unloading all of his baggage, get down on his knees to work his way through this gate. And you know, that makes for some great, great sermon material because we could say, yeah, get down on your knees and get rid of your baggage and God will bring you in. And that just sounds amazing. But guess what? It's not true. It's not true. As a matter of fact, if you look at the history, that gate didn't exist until the ninth century. So Jesus was not talking about that particular gate. He was actually saying something that causes us to miss the point when we change what his words actually say. His words actually say it is impossible for a man to make it into the kingdom of heaven by doing. It's impossible. That is why we need God. It's impossible for a man to do anything to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why Jesus says this. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. We need God to do the impossible. That is the reason why I gave you the theme up front. This overall overarching theme, which is salvation has absolutely nothing to do with our working harder and absolutely everything to do with God's divine mercy. That's exactly it. That's where this begins to tie together. Salvation is a free gift of divine mercy. It's a free gift of grace being poured out on us, getting something that we do not deserve, not being punished for something that we do deserve. And that's what this all boils down to. And the crazy thing is, that's like the main part of this story, but there's so many little things that we see even in this story that I want to cover under that same umbrella. And the first one I want to cover is this. As we look back to that story about the children, is that children are important to Jesus. It's a very important thing that, that sometimes gets skipped. Children are important to Jesus. Jesus is laying his hands on them, and he's praying for them. He's praying God's blessing on them. Why? Because they're important to him. Children are important. And you know, if they're important to Jesus, you know what they should be? They should be important to us. They should be important to us. Our children, others' children, moms, dads, aunts, uncles, neighbors, investing praying for, praying over, praying with, leading them together to understand and meet a God that loves them so much. That's what we even talked about last week in the the idea of divorce and remarriage. And and the question was, is what is it allowed to get divorced? And I said that was the wrong question. Instead, we should be saying, how can we honor God? Because there's children and there's friends and there's family that are watching to say, look what God did. And that's what we should be doing with kids. You know, on the other side of this wall, we have a 
a handful of kids that are sitting in that room. And I'm so thankful for the teachers that take their time to invest in the, in the, the nursery and in the, the kids area. And on Sunday nights when we do Paragon Kids and on Wednesday nights when we do the youth, people who want to invest in the kids because children are important and we need to invest in them. Because a lot of times, a lot of people will say, you know, kids are the next generation, but they're not. They're, they're now. Kids are the now, and as we raise them, it will change everything. And I want to encourage you to invest in children everywhere. I want to encourage you to invest in children everywhere. You know, it's, it's a crazy, crazy thing to think about, but there are kids all around the world. They're in need of our help. And some of you might be saying, well, that, that's, that's big. You know, some of you, man, I, I am so grateful that God called us to adopt. It has changed my life. It has changed our family's life. And someday, someday soon, we're going to do it again. I know it. I know it's going to happen again. And and where God's going to call us and how God's going to call us, I don't know. But we're going to do it again because it's just been that awesome. But maybe God's not calling you to adopt. You know what he has called each and every one of us to do? He's called each and every one of us to take care of the widows and take care of the orphans. So how do we do that? Maybe get involved in foster care system. Maybe get involved in just even Compassion International or one of those things where you sponsor a child every month. We are called because children are important to him, so they should be important to us. I read a stat this week that was very, very disturbing. I'm not sure if you guys know this, but the Super Bowl is one of the biggest events in America for the entire year. And in the process of the Super Bowl being that big event, lots of things surround it. I have friends that are Glendale police officers that are telling me about the, the heightened security and all the things they have to do and all the different stuff that's going on. But one of the big things that is unnoticed is the human, traffic, uh, human trafficking part of the Super Bowl. The, all the things that are going on in the CD underground around the stadium and all the things that are taking place in this human trafficking. Do you realize there are 21 million people involved uh, or, or that are in slavery human slavery there's more people now than there have been ever in the past those that are americans that are involved or that are in slavery 85 percent come from the foster care system 85 percent i'm not sure if that gives you goosebumps like it does me but to say where have we missed it where have we as a church missed the opportunity to invest in kids to keep them out of that? How do they end up there? How did that happen? It's a question that we have to ask ourselves. And, and you may say, man, that is 21 million. That's just so big. But Andy Stanley said in, in, in a thing called Be Rich, it's, it's one of his things that, that, uh, that he put together around the, the holiday season, and Be Rich is about being generous. He said, do what for one what you wish you could do for all. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. Just invest in somebody if everybody took something. As a matter of fact, I heard another stat that said that there would be zero kids in the foster care system if every church in America, just one family in every church in America, would take a foster care stu- a kid in. That's, that's unbelievable. We have dropped the ball. And we need to invest in kids. The second thing that I want to see in this, uh, going even beyond the children, is there's some hidden truths, some things about Jesus dealing with this rich man. See, we are rich. We are the wealthiest people that have ever walked planet Earth. Americans 
are rich. And as Jesus is talking to that rich man, we look and say, oh, I can't even believe that guy would do that. I mean, he was talking with Jesus, and Jesus called him to do it. But, uh, you know, if it were me, I would. What, would you? Would you if Jesus called you to give up everything? Because, see, his call to salvation is a radical surrender. It demands a radical surrender. Make no mistake about it. Salvation isn't just an invitation to pray a prayer. It's not just an invitation to say, yeah, God, I accept you into my life, but never allow him actually in your life. To make the mental decision, but never make it a heart decision. See, it goes so much beyond that. It's salvation is a summons to actually lose your life. Your life. It changes everything to let go of everything you have and everything that you are and surrender to everything that Christ has for you and everything he wants you to be. It's giving that up. And this man had a real hard time with that. And there's some common errors that people explain in this passage. And they, they, they like to say, well, maybe they universalize the whole thing and say, well, th- there's this idea that, that Christ, he's calling all of us to sell all of our stuff and go out there and live as monks. And if we have anything, we're in big trouble. That's not what he's saying at all. That's not saying, as a matter of fact, if you look at the disciples' lives, they still had stuff. But what he was saying was a little bit different than that. It doesn't say we can't own private property. It doesn't say we can't have possessions. But it does say, it does say we have to listen to the call and answer that call. It illustrates that that he will call some of us to do some pretty crazy things. And we have to answer that call, not just even be willing to, willing to answer that call because some people will say well as long as this rich man would have been willing then god would have no that wasn't it because jesus didn't say as long as you're willing he said you need to go and you need to sell and you need to give and then you need to come and follow me there wasn't any willing in there he gave him a command we have to be willing to do that and 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 listen to what he's saying to go to sell to give to come and to follow we can't dilute the call of christ The second thing we need to see is we need to realize the dangerous, deadly nature of the desire of having possessions. You know, a lot of times we look at possessions, we look at things, we call them a blessing from God. But I want you to take a flip on the other side and look at them. Sometimes they can be a barrier. They can be a barrier between us and God. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6, it says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction through craving. They wander from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. See, there's this desire that can drive us away from Christ because we start worshiping the things versus worshiping him. And we've talked about this over the, I mean, this has been a pretty consistent message that that Christ has brought us over the last year and a half that we've been going through this. We have to make sure that we're using money and serving God versus using God and serving money. We have to make sure that is something we are doing. The one last truth I saw on this is this, is that Jesus calls calls us to salvation. And as he calls us to salvation, there is an amazing, radical reward that comes with it. Some people say, man, I can't imagine that guy having to give up everything. But you have to understand that he is giving up everything to get something so much better. He is giving up the temporal for the eternal. He's giving up the stuff for something that will never, ever be taken away from him. 
He's giving up all of this. And we have this tendency to miss the reward that is in it because we see the things we have to give up versus what we're yet to get out of the deal. And I know that sounds selfish, but that's the truth. It's the truth that he is calling us to something different. And that's why he ends up with the statement with many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And it's funny because in that passage, Peter says something along the lines, well, we've done all that stuff, God, all the things you're asking. What are we going to get out of it? Once again, Jesus being kind, Jesus being merciful, answers in a way with a parable. If you have your Bibles, back over to chapter 20 now. We wrapped up chapter 19. Pick up in verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marking place, and he said to them, You, go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Well, because no one's hired us. He said to them, You too, go into the vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired from the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And, one, and on receiving, they, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to him, to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give the last worker as I give you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. A simple story here. A simple story about a guy who comes in and he works the last hour of the day and he gets paid the same as a guy who's been working 12 hours. I'm not sure about you, but this story makes me cringe. You know why? Because it's not fair. We live in a desire to be fair, don't we? If it were us, would we be the same as the guy saying, hey, I know I signed a contract at the beginning of the day to get some money out of the deal, but this guy at the end of the day got the same amount, and I did all the work, and all he did was just come in and drink coffee. No, he didn't say that, but, but it was something similar to that. But we, we get all bent out of shape about it. How can that guy get paid as much as this? That's not fair. But the really cool thing is this, is that God's not fair. God's not fair. Because if he were fair, it would change our lives. As a matter of fact, God and his grace is surprising. It surprises us. Because see, this, this whole passage is about people not getting what they deserved. Or getting exactly what the other guys thought they deserved. And there's this twist that takes place, and we think that, that if it's not fair, it shouldn't happen. But God, His grace isn't based on fairness. Let me th- ask you this. If God dealt with us according to what we deserved, where would we be? Not here. Heaven won't be possible for any single one of us. Because, because we are missing the boat. 
on our own. We can't do it. He does what we would never expect according to what we could never earn. That's what it really boils down to. Heaven wouldn't be an option for us had God given us what we actually deserve. God gives us salvation despite everything we've done, not because of everything we've done. He gives us that in spite of all the junk that we have. And the crazy thing is, is that we see that mercy and that grace that's poured out on us, and it's surprising to us that how could it possibly be? You know, I remember going to debate class when I was, when I was in, uh, in college, and, and it was a debate in ethics, and we would debate the different ethics of different things, and one of the things used to always come up was, was this, this very passage, and it was about Hitler. We'd always say, what if Hitler made a profession of faith and truly made Jesus Christ the Lord of his life on his deathbed, would he still get to go to heaven? My answer to that is, he better not. Why was I, he better not? Because I believe in justice. When somebody does something wrong, they need to be punished for it, right? Unless it's me, right? Isn't that kind of the way we approach that kind of thing? Because in all reality, is there a difference between Hitler's sins and my sins? On earth, yes. Between us and God, no. It's a barrier that's between us. And the great thing is, is that he gave to me freely and he can give to Hitler freely. But we don't particularly like that because that's not justice. But that's the difference between us and God. God is just, but he is also merciful. And he pours out his mercy on us. And the great thing is, is that can surprise us, but he is also sovereign. God's grace is sovereign. It's supreme. It's ultimate. He has the right to dispense his mercy as he pleases. Who am I to say? Who am I to say what God should do and what God shouldn't do? How am I to do that? God's grace is wonderfully surprising and amazingly sovereign. And as we see it, his grace is surprisingly expressed in the sacrifice of his son. That's where he picks up the next part of Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, this is it. This is the final walk. It's the last nine weeks of our stuff. It's shorter time than that. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on his way, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised again on the third day. See, in God's mercy, he ordained the murder of his son. For who? For you and for me. That's a huge, huge dumping out of mercy and grace because I didn't deserve it, I didn't earn it, yet he dumped it out on me anyway. And it's evident that the disciples had no idea what he was talking about. You know why we know that? Because look at the next verse. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, kneeling before him. She asked him something. And he said to her, what do you want? Well, that's how I would have said it. She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus said, you don't have any idea what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Then he said to him, we are able. He said "Then you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not for my, not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared for by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant, or they were annoyed, or they were angered at the two brothers. And it's because of their overwhelming humility they were angry, I'm sure. They were like, oh, how dare he? 
you know, those two guys, we're over here, we're just humbly waiting patiently, and they're asking to sit in the right. No, they, they were mad for a very specific reason, because they asked first. How dare they ask? How dare they have the guts to go up there and ask that question when I couldn't build the guts inside to do it? So they're mad that you brothers, and Jesus called to them and said this. You know what the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them? It shall not be among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came to serve, uh, not, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So you have a mom. A mom who comes before Jesus, bringing her two boys. Which is kind of funny. Because it wasn't even the boys. It was like the mom's like, hey, boys, come on. We've got to go talk to Jesus here real fast. You know, moms have a tendency to, to do that sometimes. They're, they're, they're very proud of their boys. They're very proud of their daughters. And they, they're, they're pushing that to, to see this happen. And she goes and she says, you know, I, I want my boys to sit at your right and left hand. I want them to, to be in a position. And he looks at them, doesn't even look at her. He looks at them and says, you're not ready for this. You're not going to be able to drink the cup that I'm going to be drinking. And it's there's this pride that, that is taking place in these guys, and they're like, well, maybe, maybe you're right. I, what, go on just a little bit more. Even though he had just said, I'm getting ready to go, and I'm ready to, to die. And he's, they say, hey, can, can these two sit at your right and left hand, you know, the places of authority and all this? And all of this is coming down, and the, and the other non-humble disciples were annoyed. They were angered. They were mad about what was going on. And Jesus, he addresses them. He addresses them with something that that probably punched them right in the gut. And that is this. Verse 28, and we can work backwards from there. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we get to Easter in nine weeks, the question we're going to look at is why Easter? Why do we do this? Why is it the way that it is? Why do we celebrate it? Why do we come together? And really, that question has been answered over the last year and a half as we've been walking through these Gospels. But Jesus wraps it up, why he came right here. The first thing, if we work backwards from him saying that, was he came to suffer. He came to suffer. The title that Jesus wraps himself in is the Son of Man. The Son of Man signifying that he came to identify with men and women that are here right now, not only in our lives, but in our suffering. He, he walked alongside of us. He put on flesh so he could experience everything that we could experience, that he could know sin but not actually sin, that he could see what it was and he could see the suffering, he could feel the death, and th- that when we walk through things in our lives, that he would understand it, that he could be a mediator for us, that he could be the one that would feel our pain and understand our hurt and he would live the human life that was here and he would drink down the wrath of God because of that. That would be poured out on us and he would walk into the suffering on that cross. He came to suffer but he also not just came to suffer, he came to save. He came to give his life as a ransom. And see, we are slaves to sin, we're slaves to ourselves, we're slaves to death. And he came to pay that price, that ransom, to set us free from that slavery. And see, even as we see that, he also came to be our substitute. He came to be our substitute. And I've used this illustration before. I used to use it in youth ministry quite often. But our life is this book. And I'm not referring to so much as the fact that it is the Bible, but 
as a picture, this is our life. And if you were to open up the front page and it says here who this is to, that's our birth certificate. And on the back page where the maps and everything are at, it's our death certificate. And everything in between is all the records of all the things that we've done in our life. And as we look at our life, we have a tendency to be like the rich guy. Say, well, I've done all the good things that I need to do. I've done all the things that, that I think are necessary to be considered a good person. And lots of people say that we are a good person. Here's the deal. What would you define as a good person? It goes back to that same question that Jesus asked the rich guy. What would you define as a good person? Is it somebody who would sin only two, three times a day? Because when you really boil it down, that'd be pretty good. A sin is any action or thought that is against God or against God's perfect plan, missing his mark. To only do that two or three times a day, that's pretty good. But let's just say that you're only sinning two or three times a day. We'll go with three for the time being, but you sin two, three times a day. 365 days in a year times three. A couple of those days you only sin twice. We'll make it an even thousand. So a thousand sins in a year. You live to be 80 years old. All my mathematician friends, 80 times a thousand would be 80,000. 80,000, that's, that's a pretty heavy duty amount for being a good person. To have 80,000 sins in this book. See, those 80,000 sins that are placed on my life keep me from having a relationship with God. It keeps me from being good enough. There's not a judge in the world that you could go to with 80,000 traffic citations. He'd say, hey, you know what? You're all good. There's not a judge in the world that would do that. And guess what? God is the ultimate judge. So our relationship with him, he cannot let us go free. Yet there's a guy in the back of our courtroom, and that guy is Jesus. He came to be our substitute. He came to take our place. He came to take this book of sins on himself on that cross. So that would be taken away so we are free to have a relationship with our God and Savior. That is the reason why he came. He came to suffer. He came to save. He came to be our substitute, and he also came to show us how to live. He came to show us how to live. And he did that by leading by example. He showed us how to live by serving us. Because then he's going to call us to serve others. And it seems simple. But ponder just for a moment. Jesus, God, God in the flesh, serving mankind. He did not come to be served, but to serve. He came to serve you, and he came to serve me. Not that he needed our help, but he wants to help us. Not that he needed our worship, but he wants to help us in that. He is not a lonely God. He is not a God that is having trouble figuring things out. You're going to see a Super Bowl commercial today that is probably going to be one of the ones that's going to be talked about that I saw. It's about uh, Mophie, the, the battery power, that God's power begins to run out. And I'm not going to go any further with that. If you watch it, you'll see it and kind of go, hmm, okay, we'll talk about the sovereignty of God next week. But the, uh, the thing is, is that, that he doesn't need our help. He came to help 
us. He came to serve us. He is our servant. And we have to understand something here. It's not like he is our waiter. He's not like we rub our little magic cross that's around our neck and boom, things great happen. That's not what it's about. He came to serve us because we need him. Because that radical call to discipleship that he called that rich man to is the same radical call to discipleship that he calls us to. And we can't do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. So he is there to help us in our obedience to him. Because you know what? When he calls us to do things, it's not normal. That's why everybody else isn't doing it. It's not a normal thing. He is calling us to do something different. He didn't just save us and walk away and say, now do it on your own. He saved us through his divine mercy. Now we live through his divine mercy. Our life, every morning that we wake up, the Bible says his mercies are new every morning. And why? Because we need them every morning. That is how he serves us. He serves us in order for us to obey, to submit to his authority, because we can't do it once again on our own. As a matter of fact, Acts 17, 25 says, God is not served by human hands as though he has needed anything, since he gives himself to all men life and breath and everything. See, he's not needed to be served, but we are called to be his servants. As a matter of fact, Paul has called us throughout the New Testament to be his servants, but not in serving him because he needs us, but serving him because we are called to be obedient, because he is the Lord of our life. We submit to his authority. We trust Jesus to serve us because Jesus' service enables us to be obedient to him. We trust Jesus to serve us because Jesus' service to us enables us to be obedient to him. We need to trust Jesus. As we do, he works in us, And he serves in us, and he serves us, and he empowers us moment by moment. Moment by moment. The crazy thing is, is this this passage wraps up in Matthew chapter 20, 29 through 34, with two blind men. Starts off with children, ends up with blind men. And once again, it all ties together with that idea that we cannot do it on our own, but we can only do it. Salvation is only possible by the divine mercy that is poured out by God. Listen to what it says. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Why? Because they couldn't do it on their own. And they realized they couldn't do it on their own. Guess what? Back to like what the kids happened. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cry, cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. We start off with children story of children who understood that they couldn't do it on their own in humility they could see jesus and then we moved to a rich man and in pride it was missing who jesus was and then you you saw the disciples who who couldn't quite grasp the love of christ and all the things that were going on it wraps up here with a blind man and really as we see it all tied together All of these things from Matthew 19 to 20, even if you include the divorce and the remarriage, there's something that you see. We need to boldly confess our need for his mercy. 
We need to boldly confess our need for his mercy. If you have never met Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you need to boldly confess for his mercy because you can't do it on your own. If you have met Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you need to boldly confess in his mercy because you can't do it on your own. It's his mercy, it's his grace that drives us. It demands a radical surrender, but it also guarantees that radical reward at the end. It's a change in our life that takes place every moment, every day, boldly confess our need because his mercies are new every morning. Humbly believe in the power of him, not proudly believe in the power of yourself. Because that's what it really all is. His power saves you, his power serves you, his power enables you and to do things that we can never do based on our own abilities. I pray that today that you understand the mercy of God because it is something that is so difficult to wrap our minds around, going back to the idea of justice, going back to the idea of how could you pay somebody the same amount that only worked for one hour than somebody did their whole lives? How can you allow somebody at the end of their life, if they truly make a confession of faith to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, how can you allow them into heaven when I've done all this stuff my whole life? It's because God is merciful, and God is just, and he is full of grace. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I would challenge you to meet him today. I'm going to step over to this room after I pray and invite you to meet Jesus. Maybe you're struggling the same way with that idea of justice and mercy. Maybe you're having a hard time just grasping mercy. Well, guess what? I don't think we can grasp mercy. But what we can do is we can live in the fact that we have it. So let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to communicate your message. And Lord, even as we look through two chapters of of the life of your son as he dealt with as he talked with as he interacted with your creation we see some amazing things take place but god the most amazing thing is to see your mercy poured out on those who didn't deserve it to see your grace poured out on those who could not earn it because you loved us that much that you loved us so much that you would send your son to this world. Not to condemn the world, but to save it through him. God, if there's anybody in here that does not understand that today, I pray that you're working in their heart and mind, that you're speaking to them, that your Holy Spirit is, is right there, opening their eyes to the very truth of your word. I pray it in your name. Amen. Okay.